Today's reading is Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 to 17. It can be found on page 732 of the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. screen. This is God's word. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, as we come into this space, we come from different places spiritually. We come from different um, experiences, some hopeful, some discouraging. We come from different kinds of family situations, and so Thanksgiving week could potentially be um, extremely joyous and comforting, or it could be um, really lonely, alienating, um, grief-filled, or maybe just some combination of those, those two options. And as we sit here, we, um, we bring all of our baggage and all of our hopes and dreams and all of our positive and negative experiences. Often, God, we hope that you would make sense of them somehow. And the truth is, we sit here not wanting to admit it, but... But the truth is we are broken and we are fragmented and it goes pretty deep and we're all more broken than we care to admit. But your story of grace, the story of your advent tells us that we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. So at the same time we live with that, that difficult reality of our brokenness, we're offered to live with a, an answering reality, the truth of Jesus that you have come that you love us and that you have brought us home and call us your children. Whether we feel like we deserve it or not, that is just a truth that we get to live under. And may you help through this consideration of your scripture this morning. Would you help that message to sink in and to transform? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We... Um, We ask the question today, who is an upstanding citizen? Who is an upstanding citizen? Um, a couple of answers that came in from the question of the week last week um, on those little cards that you can fill out in the worship guide. Someone said, my first thought is that he or she would be like the Good Samaritan and that they would care about fellow citizens more than themselves and ready to serve no matter who the neighbors are. Somebody else said, who's an upstanding citizen? Older people. <laughs> okay, that's all, no explanation. So upstanding citizen, I don't know, I guess that phrase doesn't get 
get spoken of that much, but it's out there in the common parlance. And I wonder if you think about, will, uh, just think about this question, will someone ever say that about you? Hmm? Someday would you get described, it's a bit, oh, they're, they're just an upstanding citizen. And what goes along with that, I guess, um, what tends to go along with that kind of, that kind of message or that kind of phrase is, um, you know, there's, you're well known or people know you publicly as someone who has not disappointed, who um, we can't get any accusations to stick on you because you just have this kind of integrity over the long haul that people have recognized and seen. Um, you're an upstanding citizen. You can stand up with your head high. There's no reason to shrink back or to feel weak in the knees. You're an upstanding citizen. Well, will you get described that way someday. And if you're, maybe some of you are like, I hope so. And others of you are like, no way. <laughs> And then that'd be interesting to ask the question, why or why not? Like, why, you know, what, what is in your mind that says, no, that actually isn't going to be possible? Or, yes, I really hope so, and here's why, how I hope to get there. We're talking about your, your standing or your footing or your foundation in life. What is your, what is your foundation or your standing? How are you confident to stand before the world, those around you? Um, or do you feel often weak in the knees? We have this phrase where you might say, you know, in an argument, you might say, you know, uh, you don't really have any ground to stand on with what you're, you know. You, we might kind of throw that at someone or we might say that ourselves. Well, I don't really have any ground to stand on with this argument. We talk that way. Where, what's our standing like? Is it like sinking sand or is it like a solid rock? You know, or, or do you feel sometimes like the rug has gotten pulled out from under you? And what is it in your life that can actually give you that feeling, right? That feeling everyone has things. Have you ever been there in life where you just something happens? You do something, something's done to you, and you just then for whether it's hours or days or weeks, you just live with this sort of unsettled feeling. Like maybe it even trickles into being able to sleep at night or you know, just your deep feelings about yourself and your legitimacy. Proper footing feels like it's taken out from under you. I, I've been reading this book by John Updike where the main char- character is named Harry Angstrom. And there's one scene where after he has returned to his... Um, his wife, who's late-term pregnancy, and he, and he left her. He just, like, fled. And he returns, and someone, after he wakes up, someone asks him, how did you sleep? He says, I was dead to the world. And the person says, that's the sleep, that's the feeling of doing the right thing. This, like, deep rightness that allows you to, to stand, maybe chest out, head high, and fall asleep at night and sleep. Does that ring true for you? And is it, is it true that someone can hold their head high because they are, there's a rightness that they have? Hey, Kai, welcome. There's a rightness that they have with the world around them. Well, that's not far from the, a word that's repeated in this text today from Jeremiah, righteousness. When there's this this uh, prophecy of something, someone going to come, uh, a branch, the righteous branch, it's called, righteous. 
And then it's going to be a Savior. It's going to be our Lord, our Savior, but it's our righteous Savior. We're in the realm of this standing and rightness with the world around you. And what is going on here with this Advent prophecy? In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. What's going on? In a lot of these Advent prophecies that we look at this time of year, there is, um, there's often, they're often happening amidst these political factors with the people of Judah and Israel back when they were given. And, and what's happening here, along with many of these prophecies, is actually as these prophecies are given, it's happening amidst a time of it's either just happened or it's going to happen that these people of Israel and Judah are losing their land. And if you know the story a little bit, you know that that's referred to often as the promised land, and that goes back to God's promises and God saying, this is the story, this is how it's going to play out, I'm going to put you in this place. It's a sort of, you know, you're going to have a standing before the world, but not because of yourselves, because of me, in a sense, is what God is saying. So, and very much in this ancient world, for these people to lose their land is to lose their standing. I don't know what it is in your life that is your standing, that if you lost it, that would be completely, you know, it would make you feel unright with the world. Well, that is the land for this people. And so, um, you know, for hundreds of years, it was um, common. In fact, you can still find traces of this today, but the gut reaction, the natural thing to think, as you look at this prophecy that says, but, but a king will come someday, a righteous branch in David's line. You know, there's kingly associations and political associations. The natural thing to say, if you're these people and their descendants who went off to exile, the natural thing is to say, we'll get our land back. We'll get this king and, you know, it's all going to be about the land. The king's, whoever this branch is, is going to come along, we're going to kick the bad guy's butts, and we're going to get our olive orchards back, right? I mean, that's... That's what it's going to be, right? And that was, that's so much the gut reaction, the kind of first step logical reaction to a prophecy like this, that when Jesus came, when Jesus, who Christians speak of as the Emmanuel, God with us, the Son of God, comes and arrives, they overlook him completely. Why? Well, of course, because um, he didn't have an army. How are you going to kick the bad guy's butts without an army, right? So he didn't have an army. He wasn't very righteous. I mean, he hung out with, and he he was sort of tainted by hanging out with all the wrong people, all the unrighteous ones. And the people of Jesus' day knew that it was going to take fastidious attention to the legalisms of the Torah in order to be good enough for these, this righteous branch to come. And then, of course, the clincher, he died. No, how's, how's that going to work? You know, we, you know we got, how are we going to get our land back when our leader uh, died after forgetting to get an army going? So... And this is, it's interesting because Jesus, in order to fully understand Jesus, you of course can't go back just to some minor point in the big story of God. You don't go back to the land of Canaan to fully understand the coming of Jesus and the the rightness and the righteousness that he brings. You have to go back not just to the land of Canaan, but to the land of Eden, where first and foremost we see 
not just you know, the people of Israel's problem, but we see the people's problem. We see humanity's problem when you go all the way back and you see when the righteousness gap happened and when people were no longer, for the first time, they felt deep inside themselves that I'm maybe not in good standing with God. I can't stand in his presence even. So, well, what did they do if you know the story of Adam and Eve? What did, what's that? Fig leaves. Fig leaves, yeah, cover up. And they hid. Jesus, uh, God came and walked in the garden and they were hiding. And so we go back to that story and we see humanity's problem, the righteousness gap. And when Jesus comes, he doesn't just get the Israelites, their olive orchards back. He gets humanity's righteousness back. They're standing. Um, We don't just go back to a minor point in the big story of God. We go back to the major themes and see how he answers that. And so we start Advent this year on this point. That uh, we have this great need for righteousness, to have our standing reinstated. And the arrival of Jesus means nothing less than us finally getting that standing back, us finally being settled back into the presence of God. And you know, this is like, this is everyone, right? We're all in the same boat. Everyone experiences the righteousness gap. Everyone has these universal reactions. You know what they are. What are those reactions when you experience the righteousness gap with someone in your life? You have these common reactions of hiding. You have avoidance. You have blame shifting. You have defensiveness. You have excuses. And almost all of those things, side note, you can also find in the Garden of Eden as well. And so God acts differently. Now that's the real unique thing, is that we do all those reactions to get away from the issue and God comes towards. God moves towards the gap and with Advent we celebrate our longing for him to come and fill the gap, which he promises to do and which he does. And he does it through Jesus. Now how? Because that's a, that's a great question to ask right away at this point, is how does Jesus do that? How? Do we look to this Jesus and find that he deals with our righteousness gap? Well, let's start with this, that somewhere deep inside every single one of us are two um, really strong impulses. They're echoes or rumors that are bouncing around in the midst of our experiences with life. And one of them is a sense of invalidation. Another one is a sense of great loftiness, lofty legitimacy. So, for example, when someone who you're really close to and has enough closeness to you in your life to maybe point something out about you that other people might avoid uh, pointing out, but it's not fun to have it pointed out, and so, but they're close enough and lovingly, they, you know, something comes up and they point this out to you. And, you know, you, you have these two reactions. You have these two parts of you, this deep sense of, is there an invalidation at work? And this other deep sense of, like... I, There's loftiness. There's validation. And how do you account for both of these? A lot of times what you do is you um, assert your loftiness and your legitimacy amidst someone pointing something out. But then eventually you come back around and you, 
you, you know, what comes into play is that other part, you know, that you own up a little bit. So eventually you might express both, but they feel almost incompatible, right? These two things that are bouncing around in our head, these senses that we have that go kind of deep, they feel really incompatible because really they are. It's impossible to understand them together. It's impossible to hold them together, but they are there deep down in all of us. An invalidation and a loftiness. And you're not going to be able to hold them together, says the Christian faith, until the coming of Jesus into our world and into your life and into the depth of your soul that deals with the echoing voices of invalidation and loftiness. When Jesus comes, he, is the, he, is the, he brings his loftiness. He brings his legitimacy and he's the valid son of God. And when he comes, what does he do? But he wears the crown of thorns. He wears, he wears the crown of illegitimacy and invalidation. He gives, he takes on and bears our standing, our invalidation, and swaps with us his standing. And when you know that, you can finally, you can do a few things, actually. You, you, we'll talk about three quick things just to note how this, how this actually changes you. One of the things you can do is you can finally, if you know this exchange has happened, you can finally stop pursuing and living for the shallow validation options that are around you. And you know what they are, like uh, everyone has their favorite, right? So some people's favorites is to find and look for their standing in life through their vocation, through their work. Or maybe you're a student and that's where you're finding it right now. Some people are, are just cannot stop looking for their validation and their worth and their standing in their physical appearance. Others of you, it's in your sense of humor, you know, you have to be the funny one. Um, some of you, it's in, you know, doing enough. You have to do enough. You have to keep going and doing and doing, and that's when you know that you can stand up tall, as if you've done enough. And others of you, it's pleasing someone, pleasing others, pleasing important people in your life, pleasing your parents, pleasing your spouse, pleasing your kids, pleasing your friends, or pleasing people at work. Everybody's looking for validation somewhere, standing. And a Christian is a person who gives up all the fruitless exhaustion of self validation and self-justification. So that's one thing. That's one thing that this substitute righteousness that Jesus brings, it does, is that it frees you up from shallow, um, seeking shallow standing. The second thing it does is it transforms how you deal with your unrighteousness. This is the thing that always bugs us about, you know, roommates, spouses, parents, children, close, close friends, is, you know, when they don't own up to their unrighteousness. And that's how you all talk, right? You talk about each other's unrighteousness. No. We don't talk that way, but, you know, we, we, do, we do know that we, do, we know we're unrighteous, and we know that other people are, and we especially know when other people are. And it really bugs us when they don't own it, or they don't acknowledge it, or they do all those same things that we all do, hide, avoid, self-justify, make excuses, and on and on and on. It all gets down to what is your source of confidence. And the Christian, the Christian can, if you're accessing the gospel in your life, the Christian can approach 
your own mistakes, your own unrighteousness in a way that wasn't previously possible. You can, on the one hand, own it completely and at the same time do so without it tarnishing your confidence. And you can kind of see how that's, that's often what's, it, what's threatened and why we sort of posture and we front because we're afraid that we're going to have to give up everything if we acknowledge this. We're afraid that we're going to have to be viewed and seen as completely invalid. The Christian can own it completely without tarnishing your confidence. You can have a humble confidence. You can own mistakes without it threatening your self-confidence. Because this is what the Christian says. The Christian says, my standing and confidence was never being linked to my performance anyway. My confidence and my standing has been given to me as this permanent fixture now in my life. I may not act like it, I may not hold my head high, but I could whenever I want to because it's there, it's a gift. And therefore, I can own my stuff and not lose my confidence. And actually, the... It's a, it's, a, it's a helpful gospel experience to be owning your mistakes more and more, over and over. The more you own your mistakes, contrary to the, the view that it's going to be psychologically damaging to you to, to live in that world of, oh, I've done this, oh, I've done that, actually to own them, to own your mistakes, just continues to remind you that they don't threaten my confidence. It's elsewhere it's an experience of the gospel, actually, to own your mistakes with others and with God. Um, so we talked about a few things that, the, that this replacement confidence or replacement standing does for us. It uh, frees you from shallow, seeking shallow standing. It also um, it transforms how you deal with your unrighteousness. And third, it transforms how you deal with other people's unrighteousness. Because as we await... Um, as we wait for Jesus to come again, we live still in a broken world. And people wound us, and people hurt us. And you sit here this morning um, and owe the wounds and hurt in this room that are stacked up and piled up, often by people super close to us and our stories. The wounds are there, and they are piled up on top of us. And we may imagine that the best hope we have is that some of those people who wounded us, maybe some of them are gone now, but those who have wounded us might actually someday own it and come back, apologize, and love us like they should have in the first place. And we look to that and, yeah, that should, that should happen. That's the way the world should work. But that's part of our waiting as we talk about Advent being a season of considering the theme of waiting, waiting. That's part, that's a big part of our waiting, is waiting amidst the wounds and waiting for people to apologize or to own it or to reconcile, and they're not, and they haven't, and they might never, and we're waiting. And the Christian says that we look for another coming of Christ when the tears will all be wiped away and the wounds will all be brought healing and the anger will be cooled off and the fear will be driven away. And Christians also say, if you're a Christian, you say, you and I have, we have had 
given to us a model of how to wait. Our method of waiting has been transformed by the first coming because we were taught in how God has accepted us, we were taught that when there's unrighteous people, it's not about, hey, let's, we got to kick the bad guy's butts and get our land back. That's actually not how it works. And it's not about hiding and banishing and avoiding. But the first coming taught us this. That God moved towards unrighteous people. And so as we wait for Jesus to come again, we can, because it's been done to us. I don't know if you caught that, but you're in the boat with the unrighteous ones. God moved towards you and towards me when we didn't deserve it when we were unrighteous and not seeking reconciliation. And so as we wait, and this is hard work, it's not fast and quick and easy, but we can begin to lean into living that way with those upon whom we are waiting for them to own it, and they're not. Let's pray. Our God of grace, as we wait and we wait and we wait, and the church has been waiting 2,000 years for your return, We ask that your grace and your Holy Spirit would dwell with us so that we might wait amidst the truths of your first coming, amidst the reality of your gospel that has healed us and has brought us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.